If you would open your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, I want to read to you, I think because uh, we just read the Beatitudes, I won't read them again, but I would uh, like to read to you what follows right after the Beatitudes, uh, Jesus' declaration of what the church will do in the world. The Beatitudes show us very much who the church is. You are the poor in spirit. You are those who mourn. Uh, you are those who show mercy. You are those who are persecuted. But now, in, in, as he goes out from the Beatitudes, he's working out into how the church affects the world. And this is really critical. Think about this. At the end of the Beatitudes, what do we, we find out? You find out the church, the world, persecutes us. The world persecutes us. You might think, well, that's the end of it. The, the effect the church has on the world is we get persecuted. But Jesus says, no, actually, you're going to change the world. Uh, the world may be attacking you, but you are going to change the world. And he does says that with two very timeless illustrations, salt and light, which we'll look at uh, more in depth this morning. So let me read these verses, uh, verses 13, 14, 15, and uh, 16. And there we read these words, Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Lord, we come before you and we ask you, not that you would make us the salt and light of the earth, but that you would help us to appreciate what we already are, the salt and light of the earth. Lord, we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think that one of the deepest hungers in our hearts is to be influential. One of the biggest desires we have is to make a difference. One of the strongest passions you're going to find in humanity is the desire to leave things differently than they found them. We've got this strong desire to be an influence. And it's, an, it's a desire that we're somewhat nervous about. We're nervous about it because we know that people with that desire, uh, you know, sometimes wind up conquering whole kingdoms and making everybody's life miserable because they wanted to make a, such a difference on the rest of us. And we know that that uh, passion to make a difference uh, can certainly fall into the temptations and the sins of ambition and pride and megalomania and thinking that everyone needs to be made different by me. But that passion to make a difference is not in and of itself evil. It's sort of like the way that verse is misquoted. You'll often hear people say, money is the root of all evil. That's not true. 
It's the love of money that's the, love, the root of all evil. Money can be used for marvelous things. In the same way, ambition and a desire for influence are, are not in and of themselves evil. They're good when used for a good cause and from a good and a humble heart. And they're evil when they're used from a self-centered heart and for a selfish or a satanic cause. We want to make a difference. You, you're mentoring or discipling 14, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds into the college years, and what do you get when you're talking to young people? They want to do something that makes a difference. And the last thing Christians discipling young people should do is try to crush that. Jesus said, if you want to be great, you're in sin. That's not what He said. He said, if you want to be great, be a servant. There is a way to what you want to get. That desire for influence, that desire to do something meaningful is a good desire. It's a right desire. It has to be shaped by the king of the universe, but it is a right and a good desire. And then what happens is that people make decisions in their young lives, and almost always the decisions they make lead to what's called a small life. Right? take a big, bold adventure somewhere and you wind up in a house somewhere taking the trash out every Tuesday and wondering if you're making any difference, wondering if you've got any influence, wondering whether your life matters at all. And it's important for people there to know how they are making a difference, why they are making a difference. That this desire they have not to slide into uh, mediocrity and meaninglessness is not a bad desire. Their desire for influence and to make a difference is not bad in and of itself. Think about it. The way God made us is immediately tuned to His task for us to make a difference. What's the first thing humanity heard? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over live every living thing that moves on the earth. The first thing that rings in humanity's ears is make things different. Change it. Make it better. God is the amazing God who can make a perfect world that can improve. And He uses us to make those differences in the world. He wants two people to become four and four people to become eight. He wants lonely seeds to turn into abundant farms. He wants a couple of cattle to turn into massive ranches, a few families to turn into towns, cities, and civilizations, all that display His glory and His character. And it can't be an accident that when the new creation bursted onto the earth in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the first thing He did was told us how to make a difference. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey, all baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, in this world-changing endeavor, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, why do I say all this? 
I say all this because normal Christianity doesn't feel like you're changing anything on a daily basis. How many of you woke up this morning and said, clearly, I am a world changer? No, no. We often feel these feelings. Poverty of spirit. I got nothing to offer. I'm spiritually bankrupt in and of myself. And if you haven't been around the last few weeks, I'm just going through things that are in the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. We don't rejoice on how much transformation we bring. We mourn over how much transformation is left to be done in our souls. We hunger for the righteousness that we don't yet have and we don't see around us. We break up fights between ourselves and others in our task of peacemaking. And on top of that, while we're in the middle of trying to do good, the world is against us. It opposes us. It hinders us. It puts speed bumps on our path to slow us down. And when that's happening in your life, you do not feel like you're transforming the planet. Amen? Which is why we need to understand that Jesus' words, you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world, are meant to encourage. He understands how we feel. He understands that we don't feel like we're transforming the planet. He understands like we, we are not making the difference we, we rightly hunger to be. We understand that tension in the Christian life that you've got this desire to make a difference, you've been commanded to make a difference, and you do not feel like you're making a difference. And to those people, he says, you're making a difference. You are the salt and the light of the world. And think about this. It's the same as back when we went to the, the blessed um, statements and the Beatitudes. He, he doesn't come to the Christians and says, if you're poor in spirit, you'll be blessed. If you're merciful, you'll be blessed. No, he's describing what the Christians already are. They are poor in spirit. They are merciful. And he wants them to know that even though it doesn't feel blessed, they are blessed. They are under the smile of God just because of what God has done in their hearts. And in the same vein, I think that's what Jesus is doing right here. He's saying, listen, I know what it feels like to be a Christian, poor in spirit, mourning, hungering, thirsting for what hasn't happened, guarding your heart for purity when no one else is doing that, being persecuted, being opposed. Hey, I want you to know you are a world changer. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light, not a light. You are the light of the world. So the first thing we need to ask when Jesus goes to encourage us like that is to say, what kind of difference am I making? What kind of difference am I making? And Jesus gives two illustrations, two metaphors, two pictures to describe the kind of difference the believer and the church is making in the world. The one is salt, and the other is light. So let's look at those two pictures that describe the difference we're making in the world. Salt and light. Now I imagine everyone has salt in their pantry, or salt on your kitchen table, 
salt is basically everywhere. And in the ancient world, it was even more universal and pervasive than it is now. Salt was everywhere and it served many different functions. A salt, of course, makes things tasty. A bowl of stew goes from sustaining to amazing with just a pinch of salt. My wife, before every meal, I, I'm not sure it's good enough salt. Make sure you get salt on there. She wants it tasting just perfect before anyone puts it in their mouth because that's what's going to add the panache. That's what's going to make the taste pop. Salt was not only used to flavor, but salt was used to purify. To purify. Um, in the Old Testament, we have talk of babies being purified with salt and water. Uh, salt makes, uh, also in the Old Testament, was thrown into a corrupted or a toxic stream and used by God to make it pure. So salt makes things tasty and it makes things pure. And most commonly, perhaps, in the time of the Old Testament, sorry, in the time of Jesus' life and the time of the Old Testament, it was used as a preservative. A little meat left out on a hot Middle Eastern day will quickly rot and grow rancid. But just a little bit of salt. You don't need equal parts salt to meat. But a little salt applied to raw meat can make that meat keep all the way through to the winter so that it's available to eat and preserved and not rotten and decayed. D.A. Carson writes, the point of this salt illustration is that if Jesus' disciples are to act as a preservative in the world, is that Jesus' disciples are to act as a preservative in the world by conforming to kingdom norms. If they are called to, they are called to be a moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing or non-existence. And they can discharge this function only if they themselves retain their virtue. What's the Sermon on the Mount going to do in our lives? It's going to make us saltier. Understanding what Jesus calls His people to makes them the kind of tasty, moral preservative in the world that Jesus wants them to be. And this can be very mundane. Very mundane. Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks of the ordinary man who goes to his office and his presence just changes the conversation in the office. Believers, we don't need to walk through life scolding the world for their filthy talk. Many times, unbelievers will change the jokes they tell, the language they use, the topics they discuss, just through the presence of a salty Christian. Other times, our simple acts of witness can be transformative of people's lives as we bear a simple, salty witness to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, last week I mentioned we traveled back to Canada, and we got to see uh, lots of Christie's family, and uh, we got to actually talk to three folks, three devout Christians, Christie's related to, who are teaching in the public schools. And uh, one of Chrissy's family members is an eighth grade public school teacher. And each year, he starts his classes, his eighth grade classes, by his expressing his deep interest 
in the students. And he asks all of the students in his class, what are the five most important things about them that he should know? And so he gets to hear five things from every student that reflect their heart, their life, what matters to them. And then he says, I'd like to tell you the five things that matter most to me. And he begins by saying, and the most important thing to me is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is why I'm living. He's why I know I can go to heaven. He's the one I'm living for and He shapes everything I do. Now that's a risky thing to do in a Canadian public school. While we were there, we actually talked to another public school teacher from Christie's family who had been fired for speaking openly about Jesus Christ and counseling a transgender student they were teaching that it would be wise not to pursue sex reassignment surgery, and now they're at 55 years old, out of a job, out of profession, driving bus. But this other relative, and I'm going to get too many people without names, so don't get confused, this eighth grade teacher in Chrissy's family, he has all of his students tell him the five most important things about them. He tells them the five most important things about him. And then, there's a third person coming into the story. Last year, a high school teacher in the same town as the eighth grade teacher. You still with me? We got a guy who got fired. He's over here. He's not in the story anymore. Okay. We got an eighth grade teacher who tells kids the most important thing in his life is Jesus Christ. And then we got a high school teacher. We don't even know him. He's just going to enter in for a minute here. And he gave his students an assignment. He, he gave his students an assignment to write a letter to the most influential person in their life. That eighth grade teacher got 12 letters. Yeah, praise God. That's saltiness. That's a preservative purifying, tasty effect on the world. All from someone you've never heard of and you'll probably never hear of again. Well, someone like you and me. Someone salting the world by their simple commitment to Jesus Christ in their very small daily life. Now, the second image we get is the image of being the light of the world. Of course, a light is a universal symbol for understanding and illumination. You don't need to be a Christian to talk about being enlightened. Everyone talks about being enlightened when they think they understand something they didn't understand before. But Jesus makes this audacious claim that Christians are the light of the world. Now, this is amazing to me because I, I got saved in the 90s. And in the 90s, it's still the case today, but it was even more prevalent then. Uh, in the 90s, the big scandal of the gospel was claiming the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Saying that Jesus Christ was the only way and the only life and the only way to the Father just sounded like the height of pride 
to claim that your religion in a world of so many religions was the one religion. Now, currently that's still a scandal, but in 2022 the scandal has moved a little bit to the fact that Christians dare to call people to repentance for their sexual perversions. That's the current scandal in many ways in our day. The idea that we actually think that whatever you prefer sexually isn't just a matter of indifference, but may be a matter of repentance. But anyway, back to the 90s. The question was, how can you say that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life when there's so many religions, and how can you say that yours is the one? And that, in, in a sense, has a certain offense. But I'll tell you what, it, it's, it's, it gets even wilder than that. You see, it is amazing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming down from heaven, would say, I am the light. But I'll tell you what's even more amazing. That he would look at a flake like Peter and say, you are the light of the world. That he would say to a doubter like Thomas, you are the light of the world. That he would say to James and John, who in the words of Sinclair Ferguson, sometimes flew off the handle. They were nicknamed the sons of thunder. They, these were the guys you didn't want evangelizing with you. Because <laughs> all of a sudden they started getting a little embarrassing. Okay, sons of thunder, let's calm down. And Jesus gives them this title. You, weak, immature, up and down, Christian, you, not need to become, are the light of the world. What a grace. What a grace. I heard an illustration this week. You probably heard it before. Of course, Jesus is the Son. We are the moon, right? You see the moon at the end of the day. The moon was shining bright last night. Maybe you saw it. It was beautiful. And we know that the moon shines because of the sun reflecting off that gray rock. And often that's used as an illustration for the relationship between the Christian, who's the moon, and Christ, who's the sun. I like that illustration okay, but I don't think it goes far enough. Because the light of Christ is not merely reflected off the gray reality of the Christian. The Christian actually has Christ in them. We have Christ in us. Christ is being formed in us. It's His presence in us that creates that poverty of spirit. It's His presence in us that creates that mourning. It's His presence in us that creates that hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's Christ in you that makes us long and hunger to be like Christ. And so when Christ says, you are the light of the world, He's speaking about the reality that has come into being because He is present with and and now is in every believer. That's amazing. That's why he says, you are the light of the world. Now, some of you here are not Christians. You wouldn't call yourself Christians. Some of you would call yourselves Christians, but you've never tasted the conviction of your sins, the forgiveness of your sins through the death of Jesus in the life-changing work of the Holy Spirit. So you're not true Christians. But I want to say something to you. Jesus wants to make you the light of the world. He wants to make you 
No matter how dark your life has been, no matter how much your life is like overclassed clouds that covers up the life of Jesus and the sunshine of Jesus, he wants to bring his life into your soul and make you the light of the world. He has sent his son, God has sent his son to live this light of beautiful glory. Just read about it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I promise you never seen anything like it. He wants to take that life of Christ. He did take that life of Christ. And he marched it right up to the cross where Christ died to pay the penalty for all of our darkness, for all of our sin, for all of our wickedness. That cross of Christ was meant to save you. And if you will turn away from your sin, your darkness, your evil, your corruption, all the things Christ is trying to keep at bay, with the preservative salt and light, if you'll turn away from these things and just trust Him, nothing else, just trust Him. Just believe that He's done everything to save you in dying on the cross and rising again. You will be saved. And when I say you'll be saved, I mean you will become the light of the world. I mean you will become what you were always meant to be. A human being who displays the glory of God. You will arise to become the very thing God made every person to be. Someone who doesn't show off their own glory, but someone who shows off His glory. Someone who doesn't shine how awesome they are, but someone who shines how awesome God is. You will become that if you'll just throw yourself on Jesus. If you'll just trust in Jesus. Jesus, if you'll just believe in Jesus, adding nothing. You don't need to resolve to be good enough for Him. You don't need to clean yourself up to take a bath. You just need to throw yourself on Him. Believe in Him. Trust Him. And then you will become, oh man, the most significant reality on the planet. The salt and the light. Preserving from the moral decay. Cleaning from the moral decay. And enlightening where there's darkness. Believers who have been transformed, we are filling all of the Old Testament promises. In our study of Isaiah, we saw that God would send a light that would draw the nations into the earth. Do you remember that? There would be the mountain of the Lord. There would be the people streaming in. And we saw in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3, nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Who, who are we? We are what Israel was meant to be and never achieved. We are the light of the world. You're like, I better get a platform. I better start a podcast. No, you're fine right where you are. You are the light of the world. Not by virtue of whatever position you can get yourself into. Not by virtue of whatever platform you can achieve. Simply by your union with Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. He is the one who makes you salt and light in the world. It's all about Him. Now, I'm not saying if you, if you see a way to influence more people, run up to a high mountain and say, behold your God. If you see a way you can grab more people, do it. But don't you think you need to move anything, change anything, rearrange anything? In the New Testament, slaves who couldn't get their freedom were the light of the world. In the New Testament, moms who had devoted themselves to the care of their children, and no one saw 99% of what they did, except for the ones who were there not appreciating it. 
They were and continue to be the salt and light of the world. There's maybe no better passage in the New Testament to describe what light does than Ephesians 5, 8 through 14. Ephesians 5, 8 through 14. I mentioned last week how in awe I've been of how much the New Testament is shaped by the Sermon on the Mount. You know, we talked lots in Isaiah about how amazing it was, how deeply influenced the New Testament was by Isaiah. And then how incredible it is to read through the New Testament and find, find out, wow, they'd clearly read the Sermon on the Mount. And they're just unpacking the Sermon on the Mount so many times. Ephesians 5, verse 8, Paul starts with, I wonder where he got this image. Man, he was a good preacher. You are the light of the Lord in the Lord. That's, that's good, Paul. That's good. Paul's like, I was reading the Sermon on the Mount. Ephesians 5.8 says, You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Just, just live like it. Be who you are. Jesus has shone His light on you. Don't keep going back to darkness. You are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Let me, let me say something to you. There's a lot of things in your past that have shaped you. There's a lot of sins you've committed that have shaped you. There's a lot of sins you've committed against others and others have committed against you that have shaped you. And there can be wisdom and understanding how those things have shaped us, but we must be crystal clear on this the dominant shaping influence in every single Christian, no matter what their background, is the light Christ has shone on their souls. You are not determined by anything or anyone except the light of Jesus Christ. I'm going to need to get an amen. That, I mean, that's just so encouraging. So encouraging. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Whatever the Bible commands that's good and right and true, that's the fruit of light. Do it. Jump into that. Give yourself to that. And then he says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Why does he say that? Well, because even once you know what's good and right and true, sometimes you wind up in some funky situations. And you got to discern what is right in the eye of the Lord. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Call them what they are. It's not, it's not abortion, it's murder. It's not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not sex reassignment surgery, it's, it's child abuse. It, it's not shacking up. It's adultery. It's not asking for prayer requests. It's gossip. Expose what's dark with light. 
For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything exposed is exposed by the light, either by the way you're living or the honest way you're talking, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible, now this is amazing, is light. That there's this transformative effect. If you'll shine the light out into the world, then often what gets exposed becomes light. Therefore, it says, now we're going to quote, I didn't check, I think it's Isaiah. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. When Christians just speak simple words of verbal witness and live simple lives of Christian obedience, it says to the world more loudly than you could ever get with a megaphone, wake up. O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine upon you. So i got to say it again. If you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus, then the words I'm saying to you are words that will expose your sin, but they will also call you to wake up and they will let Christ shine upon you so you can know Him and you will become light in the Lord and you will actually shine on others and they will become light in the Lord and you will become part of the unstoppable movement of history that Jesus Christ inaugurated with His life and His death and His resurrection. Beloved, our simple lives of obedience can lead others to be saved and to glorify God. Doug O'Donnell is a Christian author who tells the story of how one simple believer's light led him to glorify God. He writes, it was the summer of 1990. This is a theme. It was the summer of 1990 I had just graduated from high school and I was selected to play basketball in the Prairie State Games, which is kind of an Olympics for Illinois. Most of the guys on the team were typical guys. We swore a lot, talked disrespectfully and immorally about girls, and as superstar athletes, we're full of ourselves. But one guy on the team was noticeably different. His name was Mark Davidson. Mark never swore on or off the court. He only talked and acted respectfully toward girls. He treated everyone on the team, even the water boy, with dignity and kindness. And he was humble, even though he's the best player on the team. In fact, he was voted the best player in the state of Illinois. Mark was a Christian. I knew this by the Bible he kept next to him to his dorm room bed and from the openness of his conversation, but also, and most importantly, by his godly behavior and good works. I became a Christian about a year and a half, says Doug O'Donnell, after tasting the salt and seeing the light of Mark Davidson. His behavior made it clear to me as it settled during those months upon my conscience what it meant to follow Jesus. Who knows who you're witnessing to who will be a Christian a year and a half from now? Who knows 
You think Mark Davidson was playing with Doug O'Donnell every week going, oh, Doug O'Donnell will be saved in 18 months? Or was he, like most Christians, wondering if his not swearing, not lusting, was making any difference at all? Let alone that it was working on a man who would then later go on to publish many books and preach and pastor a church and serve the people of God. Our little acts of obedience... You don't need a new place. You don't need a better platform. You don't need a new circumstance. You don't need to change anything about where you're living. God may open those doors. They may be wise to walk through. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying there's no need for any movement to start something. You may be suffering on your bed. Not able to do anything more than set down an encouraging text. You may have all the energy on the planet and only need four hours sleep and annoy the rest of us. You can be the salt of the earth. No, really, we love your gifts. So anyway, um, this transformation can even happen when we're persecuted and even killed for following Christ. Extinguishing the light can't put out the light. If people kill you, if you lose your job, if you lose your job and wind up in all kinds of student debt because you don't have the job that was meant to pay off that student debt, you'll be fine. If you lose your life, it won't be the end of your ministry. 466 years ago, English preachers Hugh Lattimore, 460 years ago this week, English preachers Hugh Lattimore and Nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake for their witness to the Gospel and the truth of the Bible. As they were about to be burned, Latimer told Ridley, be of good cheer, Brother Ridley. We have lighted such a candle in England as by the grace of God shall never be put out. You know what the last 466 years have meant from England, right? If you've ever loved the Puritans, it happens because of this light that was lit. If you've ever loved the modern missions movement that starts in the small towns of England and has spread all across the world, you're talking about the effects of this light. If you've ever been aware that those English churches moved over to a different continent and planted a few around here, you are a part of that light that those men saw snuffed out in their own physical existence, but found the world found unstoppable because of their witness. Well, I got more to say, but I'm going to save it for next time. And I'll close with this. The light and the salt of the earth and the world is not something you become once you've mastered the Christian life. It's definitely not something you come, you, you become once you get a seminary education. You don't need a certification from any counseling organization to be the salt and light of the world. You don't even need to be able to get up out of your bed. Because there are... My, my mother-in-law is in a hospital room dying. 
And in the brief moments we got to visit with her, she is radiating the life and the hope that she has in Jesus. This light and this salt is not dependent on your ability to build a business that gives you a platform or to write a blog that gives you a platform or to position yourself just right to get a platform. A Christian character anywhere, anywhere, is the saltiest, most globe-transforming reality in the world. Christian light anywhere whether it's being seen by millions or by almost none, is the most transformational reality in the world, which just, it gives you this freedom. All you got to do is seek the kingdom. All you got to do is trust the one who forgave you of your sins. All you got to do is look to the one who makes you more and more like himself the more and more you look. And you will be salt and you will be light to transform the world fulfilling all that you were meant to do in creation and redemption. One last time. If you don't know Jesus, would you come to Him this morning? Would you come to Him this morning? if, If Christians are the light of the world, the implication is everyone else is darkness. Every other kind of enlightenment is at the end of the day a dark candle. It's at the end of the day, it's a dead-end street. At the end of the day, it's dark. There are little flashes of brilliance in every worldview, little flashes of insight in every religion. Everyone's had one good idea. And guess what we do with our little one good ideas? We don't root them and ground them in the reality of God. And so they become darkness. They just lead to more and more darkness. More and more sin. But if you will turn away from your darkness to Jesus who is the light of the world, you will be saved. You'll be delivered from the wrath of God and you'll be changed in this world and you will become light in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your glory, for shining your light upon us. You are our light. You are our strength. You are our shield. You are our savior. You are our refuge. You are our King, Lord, would you help us to understand the blessedness of being poor and mourning and hungering and being persecuted and knowing that right there is we make, where we make the most transformative difference in the world as your salt and light. Use us, we pray. Surrender our hearts to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.